I'm turning once again back to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, and I want to draw your attention to verses 24 and 25. And we'll see our subject for this morning. Hebrews 12, verses 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped, not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Our subject this morning is the blood of Christ speaks. The blood of Christ speaks. Today, there are no doubt many voices speaking. There are voices that are growing louder and louder. There are voices that are growing more boisterous and more bold. There are voices that are growing more angry. There are voices that are growing more uh, with the desire to harm, with the desire to destroy, to inflict pain, to inflict suffering, to inflict harm on the recipient's to whom they speak. What we speak and what we say absolutely positively matters. Not just when or how we speak, but what we speak matters. How we speak to somebody, the tone in which we take, the context in which we speak to them, all of these things matter. But there is no louder voice that is speaking in this world than the voice that speaks and speaks of the blood of Christ. The loudest voice in the world is not the media. The loudest voice in the world is not the most boisterous, loud, obnoxious individual. The voice that's the loudest is the blood of Christ that speaks. Of course, the blood itself doesn't speak, but the representative of the blood, Jesus Christ, is He who speaks from heaven. He who is seated at the right hand of God the Father now, ever living to make intercession as that mediator. The voice of Christ was once heard audibly on this earth. Jesus preached the gospel. He preached repentance. He preached a turning away from sin. He called people unto himself. He spoke the words to Lazarus to arise and Lazarus rose up. He spoke devils and demons out of people. He proclaimed to Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. And those voices and those in which he spoke to obeyed. The voice of Christ is not hindered, nor is it denied. But there is the principle of being refused. Now understand something, that God is never hindered by man's response to him. God is not hindered by what he does, what he does not do, by how man responds to him. God is not reactionary. God is fulfilling and carrying out his purposes from even before the foundation of the world. Man in his arrogance decides to say, I can keep God from doing such and such. I can prevent God from doing whatever that might be. God has never been hindered one time. We do have examples in the epistles where Paul says something to the effect that Satan hindered us. But never is it that we've hindered God. But yet the loudest voice that's being spoken... The loudest voice that's being spoken even at this moment 
is the voice that speaks from heaven. That voice is the Son of God. That voice is Jesus Christ. And what is he speaking about? He is speaking about his own shed blood. The writer in this final, this uh, next to final chapter in the book of Hebrews is dealing with a number of different subjects. But the very first statement that he makes, back in verse 15, he talks about this very important understanding. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now let me assure you today, God's grace has never once failed. God's grace has never failed to save a soul it was intended to save. To suggest that man is the one who determines it is to make God subservient and to make God responsible or in debt to humanity. He owes man nothing. He doesn't owe you your next breath. He doesn't owe you your next meal. He doesn't owe you another day of sunshine. He doesn't owe you another day to live. God doesn't do what He does out of some sort of debt. He does it because He is carrying out His purposes. He's carrying it out according to His purposes and His plan. But man can fail. We see failure of man all the way back in the very first book of the Bible. Man was put in a perfect environment and man failed almost instantly. Man still today says, give me this, give me a perfect environment and I will keep the law. I'll keep the commandments. Man given a perfect environment with perfect circumstances and a perfect setting will still fail to live up to what he needed to be. God demands he de demands completeness and perfection. None of which man can give. But what is it to fail the grace of God? Well, the first heading this morning really deals with verses in verses 15 through 17 based upon that expression with this admonition and this caution this morning. See that you do not remove yourself from the grace of God. To fail the grace of God is to remove yourself from God's grace. The first step in refusing and removing yourself from God's grace is to refuse to hear and listen for the voice. The man who falls short in verses 15 and 16 is the man who departs the grace of God for something greater, or so he seems, or so he thinks. A man who falls short of the grace of God or fails the grace of God is not a man who sees God's grace fail, but a man who in and of himself is lacking the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone. That man that fails the grace of God is lacking what he needs the most, which is Jesus Christ. See that you don't remove yourself from that grace. See that you don't take yourself away from the voice of God being spoken. Wherever God's voice is being declared and proclaimed, we ought to set ourselves under that to be able to hear that. People will make choices today about what they're going to hear. Everyone in this room has different voices that influence them. Everybody in this room has a voice that it might be someone you know, it might be a family member, it may be someone that uh, we, get from, we get our news from, whatever the case is, although I'd caution you on that severely. But we all determine what we're going to place ourselves in front of. 
Some people are, even as Christians, they are placing themselves under voices that really have no eternal significance and really are not even edifying to you physically or temporally. But you ought to set yourself under the preaching of grace. Grace is a misunderstood and misused term. Oftentimes, we think the reason that we don't get grace is because I'm not choosing to have grace. I'm not choosing to find grace. That's not what he says. He says, lest any man fail or depart the grace of God. A man who fails the grace of God is a man who does not trust in the voice. Again, you can be here today and you can tell me and you can tell others in this building that you are trusting in Christ and yet you have failed the grace of God. You are nothing more than a professing believer, but you do not possess those things which come from being saved by grace. That's why there's no such thing as being saved and then there being absolutely positively no changes in your life. Conversion always leads to holiness. If your conversion doesn't lead to holiness, you're still in your sin and you're still in what the Bible says in a profane condition like Esau was. Esau was in a profane position. We see that the writer talks about selling his birthright. Again, there's so much more to this than just the selling of his birthright. What was the reason why he sold the birthright? Grace alone is what gives the person holiness. Grace without holiness is not grace at all. What's the opposite of grace and holiness? Verse 15 tells us. It's a root of bitterness. Without the grace and the holiness that's produced by the grace of God, you have the result, which is the root of bitterness springs up. Now here's the frightening thing about bitterness springing up. Bitterness springs up from within us. Now, we say that we're bitter because of something that happened to us. You're bitter because that root is already there. It only takes a certain event or circumstance to make you bitter. Bitterness always leads to unforgiveness. And unforgiveness, if I can put it so simply, leads to misery. You want to be a miserable person, be unforgiving. It's the most miserable position you'll ever be in. That you will never be more miserable than when you are bitter and unforgiving and you'll never be less helpful to anyone while you're in that condition. A bitter, unforgiving person is of no help to another person because that bitterness becomes the thing that rises to the top. The grace of God is what helps prevent that bitterness from springing, that root of unforgiveness, that root of lack of repentance, that, that desire to not want the things of God, but yet want the things that we can offer. The root of bitterness is the characteristic of an earthly-minded person. The, the illustration that the writer of Hebrews gives us of a root of bitterness is Esau. He's described in verse 16 as being a fornicator or a profane person as Esau. Now, we're not told exactly, even in the Old Testament, of what this explicit immorality of Esau was, although there are some suggestions. And the intent this morning is not to delve deeply into that, but I think we're, for the most part, we're aware of what Esau was guilty of. 
Esau was guilty of selling his birthright. And it explains about this in verse 17. It kind of shows us the context to illustrate to us his profane state of mind or his earthly mindedness. For ye know how that afterward... I find it's interesting that when the writer was writing to the Hebrews, he says, you know this story. You know what happened. Now, if you've been in the faith for any amount of time, the story of Jacob and Esau is one that's probably very familiar to you. That Esau sold his birthright for a a bowl of pottage or a bowl of soup. It was seemingly something so carnal and so uh, something you would never think you would do. But you notice that it says afterward, you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. Now there comes a time in that story where Esau regrets after he had his physical need met, he regrets that decision. Now isn't that the truth in our life? The physical decisions that we make based on our physical circumstances, the moment that gets relieved or satisfied, Sometimes there's a deep sense of regret saying, I can't believe I did that just for a temporary satisfaction of my physical need. That's exactly what Esau did. He sold it because his physical, his earthly mindedness was the most important thing. At that moment, he didn't want the blessing. He just wanted the food. Now, again, you'll bear with me. I'm I'm simplifying that story a bit with intent. But it does say some very important things about Esau. He was rejected. Now, that's not popular in a lot of our Christian circles. If he wanted to come back, he could have come back. That's not what it says. It says he was rejected for that choice. He was rejected. And it even says that Esau so regretted that, that he found no place of repentance. Though he sought it, sought what is the it, repentance, carefully with tears. Esau was an example of a man who removed himself from the grace of God and failed the grace of God. Now the time came when Esau thought about what he had done, sought carefully with tears to change his father's mind, having Isaac to change his mind and give him the blessing. And you know the story. Isaac does not budge and Isaac does not consider putting the blessing back on Esau, who was the quote-unquote rightful recipient of that before he sold it. There's no change of mind. There's no, okay, I know you made a mistake. This is a really difficult passage to deal with. The story is difficult to deal with because we have this idea in our mind that I can, if I refuse today, if I remove myself from the grace of God today, if I see that I regret that decision, I will just simply turn back from my way and I will just make things right. Esau was rejected and even though he sought repentance with tears, he never found it. Now I know the free will people will say, well, he just didn't try hard enough. He didn't want it bad enough. That's not what it says. It says he couldn't find it. 
You know why? Because repentance is not from us. Repentance is a gift of God. God never granted to Esau the gift of repentance. And the fact that you were brought to repentance is the gift of God. Not because one day you decided, I'm convinced enough that I'm guilty of this, so I'm going to repent. No, that's the gift of God. Our very repentance is God's gift. Esau is the one who's being given as the example who removed himself. Nowhere in Scripture is Esau ever represented as an apostle, as a follower of Christ, follower of God, however you want to phrase it. He's never given as one who professes to be a believer, and he never appears to be a believer. All we read about is that he eventually falls away. You don't see a struggle with Esau's life saying, look, I want to be a believer. I want to do this. No, he falls away. He failed the grace of God. He removed himself from it. Now, by way of an application, I understand this, and I, I don't want, I'm not trying to be cute about this, and I'm not trying to make this emotional, try to pull on heartstrings today. But I'm telling you, there are people who sit, and then they, over, under preaching, and they hear the word of God, And they finally just remove themselves from it. They say, I don't want this anymore. And they turn away from it. And God never, ever, ever returns to them. Now, in the mystery of God's providence and God's grace and his sovereign will, I can't give you the answers to that because there is no says this is when it's going to happen. But I want you to understand, there is never a time in Scripture where Esau has said, you want to make these things right? You realize Esau was rejected. He's removed from the grace of God. Every time you hear the word of God, every single time, you ought to be examining yourself as to whether you're in the faith. And I don't care if you have a profession that's 50 years old. Paul repeatedly in the Bible tells us, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. And that's not just during the Lord's Supper. That is during all times. Examine yourself. The worst thing I could do for you today is to stand here and tell you with 100% assurance, don't worry about anything you're hearing today because if you already settled this matter, you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, don't worry about it. I cannot know your heart. You can profess a lot of things and not be in possession of Christ at all today. Jacob and Esau born, same parents, twins, That wasn't anything that gave them the right to the grace of God. The meaning here, the writer Esau is declared to be one who was not able to find repentance. But we know that no matter how he begged and pled with his father, he would not change his mind. And Isaac did not repent or was not sorry that he had conferred the blessing on Jacob. Why? Because the Bible declares that God approved of Isaac's blessing of Jacob. Those that want to oversimplify the story in Romans about Jacob and Esau, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, you've got a big problem on your hands. Because if you just want to make that with reference to the big picture of Israel, what are you going to do with Esau? That's the harder question. Jacob, we can see the beauty of the blessing on him, but what are you going to do with Esau? Again, in that mysterious language that Paul wrote when he wrote to the Romans. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So we see, first of all, 
that you do not remove yourself from the grace of God. Second heading, verses 18 through 24, see that you reject not the better things that are in Christ. See that you reject not the better things in Christ. Remember, much of our study through the book of Hebrews has been the problem of the Hebrews looking back towards the keeping of the law and the sacrifices and the offerings as the means in which they were gaining a right standing with God. Hebrews is about pointing to the better thing, the better person, which is Christ. Notice what it says here in verse number 18. For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they had heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. I want you to understand that. They could not endure that which was commanded. The writer is telling them, you are, if you are still seeking your standing and seeking your standing and acceptability before God in those things, they could not endure them, nor can you. To try to go back to the law as a means of my right standing before God, I can tell you how that's going to turn out for you. You will not be able to endure it. You cannot endure the demand because it demands something you cannot provide. You say, I'm a good person. Nowhere does the Bible say that's a requirement for any of your standing. And yet it's the great argument that the person who refuses the grace of God and rejects Christ says, I am a good person. None of us are good in and of ourselves. None of us can claim goodness. You say, well, yes, I am. Look what I do. The standard is not other man, it's not other humans, it's God. Your best act is filthy when it's compared to the righteousness and the demands of a holy God. You say, but I give and I do. I, I provide. It's not good enough. Even if those in the Old Testament had been able to keep all those things, it would not have been good enough, but no, they could not endure it. The more they tried to endure it, the more they tried to maintain it, the further and further away they got from God. It didn't draw them to God. Now, did the law have a purpose? Absolutely, the law had a purpose. Remember, what the writer had in mind here is the great contrast between the better things compared to that which was known as Judaism. That's what this entire study has been about. Verse 20 again, that they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so, much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. I want, you to, I want you to look at those verses and I want you to really look at them and pray with them with, under, pray with understanding. The Spirit would give you clarity on this. There's truths here I can't even draw out myself. The, the, the writer so terrible was the sight the sight of what those that could not endure what was being commanded Moses it says was filled with fear exceedingly and quakes at this this may be a side note but the one thing we are missing we are missing the actual fear of God in our lives 
our lives, every one of us, including myself, would radically change if we truly understood the fear of God, even as believers today. Radically change. It's something that we're not completely grasping. But the fear of God here is the fear of God in man trying to endure and keep something he or she could not keep. And he says he associates this with rejecting the better thing. The better thing is Christ. The better thing is Christ is the sure and steady anchor as we sang that song. It is the anchor of the soul. It's not the anchor of temporal blessings. It's the anchor of the soul. It's the only thing that's going to determine your soul's destination. Everyone in this room is going to one of two places. There is no in-between. There is no purgatory, the heretical teaching. It does not exist. It's either heaven or it's hell. And if you are relying upon your keeping of these as the Judaizers, that that's your ticket to heaven, you will find yourself separated from God for all of eternity because nothing you can do will gain you standing before God. What the end of faith is, is really what these verses talk about. The goal of glory is being unfurled or unfolded before us. Believers right now, we don't have anything to do with Mount Sinai. We do not have anything to do with what was being commanded there. We don't have that same fear or the terror of what they were seeing, what made Moses quake, what made Moses shake. But what the writer is doing, he says, I want you to see the earthly and the heavenly glories that what faith brings us to. It brings us away from that which was so fearful and that which was so terrible to see. And he wants us to see the beauty of the better thing. Folks, if I could just get us to see the beauty of Christ Jesus and His blood that speaks. We're not looking today at Mount Sinai. We're not standing at the foot of that mountain and trembling in the same way. Should we desire to keep God's law? Absolutely. Don't ever take it away that I'm saying that the law is not meant to be kept. That moral law is still just, should be just as binding on us that we want to live a life that's pleasing to God. But if you're trusting in any of those things, ceremony, you're trusting in your works, you're trusting in the keeping of those things, you will end up in hell away from God. Not might, you will, if that's what you're trusting in. He mentions Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion throughout Scripture is a picture. It's a literal location, but it's also a picture to give us this heavenly viewpoint. Notice how it's described. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. I've never been to the actual location, Mount Zion. Never been there. Never even been close to it. But it says, you are come unto Mount Zion. There's a spiritual application. He's not talking about you got on a plane and you flew there and you went up Mount Zion. But he says, you that are in God, you that are in Christ, that's where you've come to. And look at the beautiful description. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, 
to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Mount Zion is being mentioned here. It's the place where the Lord has chosen for a picture of His rest. Psalm 132 verses 13 and 14 talk about Zion being a place of rest for His people. But He wants us to see this coming day when Zion will be that that center, that place to which where God's appointed king will establish His rule. This is a reference to Christ. The glory of the coming of Christ is that we will be taken to the glory above the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. There's a lot of voices again speaking about what heavenly Jerusalem is, what real Jerusalem is, where we're going to be, what we're going to be doing. Don't miss the voice that's speaking. Oftentimes, we're getting caught up, even today, we're getting caught up prophetically. We're seeing every event that unfolds on the screen, and we're saying, we're trying to make connections, and we're saying, oh, I know what this means, I know what this is, I know what this is. Be careful of declaring what you know. We don't know a third of what we think we know. But I want you to understand that the writer is not talking a lot of where your physical location is going to be as much as he is. I want you to see the better thing. I want you to be grateful that you're not standing at the foot of Mount Sinai looking up at that terrible sight, not being able to endure the requirements. The requirements itself made Moses fear. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If the preaching continues in this country the way it's going with the watered-down, sugar-coated stuff, the fear of God is going to be removed from this country in a way we've never seen before. Men are afraid to stand up and proclaim the truth because they're afraid of losing people. They're afraid of losing things. The Word of God is to be feared and God is to be feared. We are to fear Him above everything and everyone else. But that fear of God, that desire to even fear Him, It's not the result of our human education. It's the gift of God being able to open our eyes to how, why, and who He is. Mount Zion's mentioned, and we talk about the city of the living God. The city of the living God is a reference made even even Abraham when he looked in faith and he's looking towards a time where the eternal home of the saints of God would be. And I love this. And to an innumerable company of angels. To the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. The church of the firstborn is a reference to those who are in Christ. Those who are written in heaven. And to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. He is wanting us to see the beauty of the better things. Don't reject it. Don't turn away from it. You don't even have to accept my words today. But don't reject His words. See that you reject those words. See that you do not reject them. See that you say and you hear the church of the firstborn, ones which are written in heaven. There are names written in the book of life. It is a reference to the very church. There is and will be 
and unbroken eternal fellowship, not just with God Himself, but with all of the saints who constitute or make up the body of Christ. There is coming a day when all the saints from every age, from every generation, from every corner of the earth, from every country, and I do mean this, every country, even the smallest places where they say the gospel's never gotten there, there will be people from every nation that's ever existed or ever will exist. There'll be people in eternal glory who, are, who make up this body. And to God, the judge of all. Who is the judge of all? Well, the Bible declares that Christ is the judge. It is His Son who will judge the world according to righteousness. Whose righteousness? Yours or His? His. Every man and woman will stand before God and will be judged according to His righteousness, not according to their own righteousness. Now, if a man is in his own righteousness and he goes, stands before God and he says, this is what I have to offer, this is where I stand, his righteousness will fail and he will be cast out. Depart from me, I never knew you. But a man that's judged by the righteousness of Christ will stand eternally. Christ is the better thing. There is nothing better coming. People are looking for better churches, better things, better programs. If you have a church that's preaching Christ, there is nothing better. Stop looking for it. The better thing is not coming around the corner. The better thing is in Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and it is the sole righteousness that will stand before the judge of all, which is Jesus Christ Himself. The Bible says that God the Father has put all things under His feet. It is, under, it is for Him and by Him and through Him. Always has been, always will be. And then notice verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. This is where we see this subject, and we've already been dealing with it, but we see that it is through Him and through His blood that all of these glories will be accomplished. If I am in the faith today, it is to that alone that I am looking towards. When the blood of Christ speaks, I know what it says. When Christ's blood speaks for me, I know in detail what it says. There's no, I wonder if it's right. I wonder if there's another way. I wonder if there's another perspective. I wonder if there's another viewpoint. You see, when humans speak and they don't speak truth, that's what they're saying to you. They're speaking a viewpoint. They're speaking their point of view. That's why you can take one topic and you can cause a war between two parties. Same words are being spoken, but it's the viewpoint that causes the conflict. You realize most every conflict that's ever happened in the world is a religious conflict? You say, no, it's not. It's over land. No, it's a spiritual conflict. It's a spiritual conflict that started all the way back in the garden. It's a spiritual conflict that started with two brothers, two sets of brothers, Jacob and Esau and Cain and Abel. 
Every conflict arises out of those things. And we're wondering, well, how do you get peace? The blood of Christ. That's where peace comes from. I'm not going to buy a single peace treaty you try to sell me between two nations. It won't last. Unless that is signed in the blood of Christ, there is no perfect peace. And there is coming a day when there will be perfect peace. There'll be no conflict. There'll be no sorrow. There'll be no tears. Why? Because sin will have been removed. Sin's the problem. Sin's your problem. It's not your circumstances. Stop blaming people for your circumstances. We're responsible for our own actions. And yet, the judge of all will judge the world in righteousness. Look what it says. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. What will the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, do? It talks about the spirits being made perfect back there in verse 23. The church, the firstborns, the firstborn ones, they receive their perfection. These things are all coming. It is a blessed goal, an understanding for those who are heirs of God that He will one day bring us to glory. He's able to say to the uttermost. Our third heading finishes out the chapter, verses 25 through 29. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. This final warning makes up the end of this chapter. And it said, For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, every one of those that refused Christ when he spoke on this earth, every one of them that refused him and rejected him, is in hell today. That's where they are. That's where they'll be a million years from now. And the point here is, is if, you, if they refused him that spake on earth, when he was ministering on earth and he was preaching the word and he was preaching repentance, if they refused him when he spoke on earth, what are they going to do? And look what the phrasing is. Again, you may have a different translation. Much more, much more shall not we escape Now, I'm not terribly smart, but I do know that much more means something that's more than the other thing. It means there's an increase. There's an increased accountability. What is the warning about? There's much more that we will not escape if we turn away from Him that speaketh from heaven. Who is the one speaking from heaven? It is Jesus Christ and His blood which is speaking. Now, there was mention made of Abel. Now, you know the story back of Cain and Abel. Abel brought forth the right sacrifice. It was a blood sacrifice. Cain brought forth the very best that he had to offer. And the reference is made that Abel's offering of blood speaks volumes and it speaks the truth. But even that doesn't speak in the same capacity as the blood of Christ speaks. I am not saved, nor you saved, by Abel's sacrifice. 
I'm not saved by his blood that he brought of that animal that they shed the blood of. What I'm saved by is the blood of Christ. It's an important distinction. It's not just any blood. I could bring the blood of a spotless lamb to you today. We could sacrifice a lamb on this communion table today and it would have no power to do anything. We could be sincere about it. We could pray to God and say, God, please accept the shed blood of this spotless, precious lamb that is shedding its blood innocently. It hasn't done anything wrong. It's without blemish. It's without spot. And we could offer that blood up to Christ and he would say, that is unacceptable. But my sincerity, Lord, I'm sincere. It doesn't hold any righteousness. What if we make it ten lambs? Wouldn't matter. The blood of Christ is speaking. See that you refuse not Him. Notice the refusal is the Him. Christ that speaks. He that spoke on earth. Often we miss this. He that spoke on earth is the same voice that speaks from heaven. See, Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament. I spent a lot of my saved years not even understanding that Christ was in the Old Testament. To me, and my very small, finite knowledge, the Old Testament was about one type of God, and the New Testament is when we get Jesus. And for years, I thought that was right. I thought I had it. New Testament, Jesus. Old Testament, this God that we can't touch, this God that we don't see. Yet everything that's happened in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. Every type, every shadow, every illustration, everything was meant for us to see Christ. And that's why Abraham has said, rejoice to see my day. Jesus' own words, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, even though he didn't know his full identity. He knew there was a Redeemer. He knew there was a perfect, better person coming. It's the same Jehovah God. To refuse Him means that there is no escape from the wages of your sin. Even when God spoke at Mount Sinai, His voice shook the earth. Now here's the problem. People are always looking for the fantastic and the magnificent. That's why churches are trying so hard to put on a good show for you because they think what we really need is we really need to see a fantastic sight before us. No, you do not. You need to believe the Word of God. Stop trying to program some sort of false narrative and just preach the Word of God and let God do what He's going to do. This showmanship Christianity needs to go. It serves no purpose. It serves no value. But you know what people are doing? I'll believe when the building shakes. I'll believe when I'm put into the fear of God when I physically see the building shake. Listen, it ought to shake your knees to the core to fall into the hands of a living God without Jesus Christ. And I can't be any more serious than I'm being this morning. Odds are this building's not going to shake to prove his existence. God's already done everything he needs to do to prove he is real. You're at a place now where you are refusing it and rejecting it and say, I don't want to see it. Yet it's the loudest voice in the room. 
He is speaking even now, and it is shaking the earth. I'm not trying to be dramatic. It's all over. That's what it's doing. There are people being saved today. There are souls being converted, even though we don't see it. Thousands of people have been converted today by hearing the voice of Christ. And a mountain didn't shake. An earthquake didn't happen. Yet people won't believe that. But you'll go home today and you'll turn something on TV and some human person with all their sin will say something and you'll believe it without even checking your own sources. And you'll say, see, that's man's greatest problem. No, man's greatest problem is he refuses and is rejecting the blood of Jesus Christ and he's rejecting his voice. Your eternal soul is, 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 is at stake here today. Yet this voice, it's a prophetic statement because even in the book of Haggai, there is a day when the earth will shake. There is a day when Christ will return. There will be a day when, when Christ returns, judgment will fall upon all who obeyed not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't get your theology from the left behind book. Please. It's a deceptive lie from the pit of hell to think, well, if that happens, then I'll... No, you won't. Folks, we've gotten so much of our theology from what some production has told us, we don't even know biblical theology anymore. You realize the book of Revelation is not supposed to be a book that causes controversy? It was never intended to be the very heart of what we argue about. More people are arguing about the end times more than they are about the blood of Christ. Revelation was not meant to be a debate book. It was meant to be a declaration of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, what's going to happen this day? And what does this mean? There are some important truths in those, but that is not the ultimate goal of which eschatological position do you take? There are going to be millions of people who had their eschatology right and never once heard the blood of Christ speak. They were prophetic geniuses. They didn't know Christ. And yet the whole book of Revelation is to unveil this. The book of Hebrews in many ways kind of mirrors what's, going to, what's happening in Revelation. There is this voice that is speaking, the things that were, the things that are, and the things that will be. The writer of Hebrews is doing the exact same thing. Jesus Christ is going to come again, and every one of those who obeyed not the gospel command of repent and believe, things will be shaken. But notice what he says. He says, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This coming of Christ is going to do more than just shake the earth. It's going to shake the heavens. Now again, this may be a point of contention with you, and I'm not, I am not interested in debating this. But there are some that say how these events are going to unfold, and that there's going to be this secret rapturing and secret stealing away of people, and that we're going to be flying on planes, and planes are going to have people disappearing. No, I believe that when Jesus Christ comes again, every eye is going to see him. This is not going to be some secret unveiled event where people say, what's going on? Christ is coming, and he's going to shake the earth, and he's going to shake the heavens with it. Now again, 
I'm not interested in debating your position on that. You can have that position. That's where I'm standing. Because I believe. It says every eye. And even in Revelation, it talks about those who pierced him. A specific reference being made to those who pierced him. The things that this word, he says, yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know, all that's going to remain is the kingdom of God. That's it. You look out on the beauty of this earth and you look out at the beautiful things it provides us, every bit of it's going to be shaken. And the only thing that's going to stand is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Folks, if you're living for this world, you're living for something that is dying and will one day be shaken to the very core and it will not be here anymore. Even Peter writes about strengthening those things that remain. The eternal perspective. Wherefore, we receiving. Notice the emphasis on the we. This is not universal salvation. He's writing to believers. Remember, the whole intent of Hebrews was because believers were going back and falling prey to their old ways. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. The whole world can't claim that's coming to them. You have family members that think they're going to heaven. And they're sure of it. And they have no faith in Christ. And they will tell you over and over again, I know I'm going to heaven. And you say, on what basis? And they have no biblical answer. But you know what? They are as certain as they are deceived. They, are, they believe that what they have is all they need. They're not going to receive that kingdom. But this kingdom, he says, which cannot be moved. And then notice this kind of, tucked in there. Let us have grace. Isn't it interesting that this section started with don't fail the grace of God, but that those who are receiving this kingdom have grace. Folks, we also, again, maybe a side note, but we've got to get away from this ugly Christianity that's raising its head. This hateful stuff towards the unbeliever this hatred that's spewed out. And again, I am not in favor of sin. I am not in favor of the things we're seeing. But folks, you are not, you and I are not so perfect that we have the right to just be terrible to people. You say, but look at their sin. Okay, let's look at yours. Because your sin apart from the saving grace of Christ, would have kept you from heaven just as much as that awful sin they're doing. You understand? And there are, there are terrible things that are being, that our country is supporting. You understand? The United States of America will be judged and is being judged because of its support of abortion and it will be judged for that. You cannot take that into your life and say that there's no consequences for that. We are reaping the consequences of taking lives when we don't have the right to take them and butchering children. You understand? We can't support these things. But you understand that behind every one of those people, every one of them that is standing for that, we ought to be preaching the same gospel to them and we ought to be preaching it in a way that shows them to Christ, not our hatred. 
You know, you can't preach the gospel and not be hateful about it. You know, it's so, it's so, we're so quick to compare our sin, even as believers, and say, well, at least I don't support that. At least I'm not for that, like those terrible people over there. We forget any sin left in us, no matter what that sin is, would keep us out of heaven if it weren't for the righteousness of Christ. See that you don't refuse Him. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Notice the reference is made, our God is a consuming fire. This has, been, this, this has been argued and debated for many, many years is why in the world, if he's talking to believers, would he say our God is a consuming fire? What does he mean about that? It doesn't mean that we can just kind of serve God however we want and not have to expect any consequences. We are, verse 28 tells us, we are to serve Him properly. We are to serve Him rightfully. God is a consuming fire. And God, in a perfect way, is a jealous God. Not jealous like you and I are. He is a jealous God. He will not share His glory with anyone else. He's not going to share in His what He has rights to. What matters are they talking about? Well, notice reverence, godly fear. It under, we understand this to be in our matters of worship and our approach to Him even after we are converted. God alone is to be worshipped and He is to be approached in a manner that is suitable to Him and is determined by Him. Which means the yet renewal and revival of the worship wars. If you're not familiar with that, consider yourself blessed. The worship wars over what's right, what's wrong. It's a very easy solution to that. What does the Bible say about how we're supposed to worship Him? I'm not consulting the latest worship book on how to worship God acceptably. I already got the book. It's clear. It's amazing how simple worship is meant to be. And how worship was never meant to be about the worshipers. And we're always looking for an experience. It's interesting. Worship in the Bible was often found men and women flat on their face before God, too afraid to look up. Because they were so afraid that they were not worshiping reverently. They were afraid of their own heart. They were afraid that there's some motive in me that's incorrect. When's the last time the worship leader got up and asked you that? Well, there's not a worship leader here. There's just simply the Word of God. And we say, listen, am I worshiping God acceptably? That's what this ending of this chapter is about. We cannot come to God in any other way other than through what He has said. He will have all the glory. Our God is a consuming fire. He is, he is God. It is His providence we trust in. It is in His protection He takes care of us. He provides for us. Fire is not always in a fire of wrath, but it's also a fire that's used to guide. Remember the pillar of fire that guided the people of Israel. It was meant to be something that guides them. Fire is also used as part of the sanctifying process to purify us, preparing us for our eternal dwelling. Don't despise the sanctifying Spirit of God. We bring this to a conclusion. Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. The covenant was made between God and man to bring man into this covenant. Christ is the mediator, is he who keeps 
us together. It is Christ who pleads with God. It is Christ who brings us to God. This covenant was made secure by the blood of Christ. It is Christ's blood that secured this covenant. The blood of Christ speaks on behalf of sinners. Today, my plea with you is, is not a plea with you for God's vengeance, but a plea for you to come to God's mercy. And to not wait until next Sunday. And not wait until Wednesday. Not wait till this afternoon. Don't refuse the voice of God that speaks. Run to Christ. See that you do not remove yourself from this grace. See that you do not refuse His gracious call and His salvation. See that you don't refuse Him who's now speaking from heaven. And heed the warning. How shall we escape who turn away from God in unbelief? God is continuing to deal with man. He will not always continue. There is coming a day when the salvation of souls will be complete. It will be done. Every one of God's elect, once they are brought into salvation, there is coming a day when that will no longer be there. The gospel is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful not because of us. It's beautiful because of Christ. I can think of no one more beautiful than Christ himself. And yet the most beautiful thing that's standing before you today and speaking before you is the thing that you're at risk of rejecting and refusing and walking away from. Don't refuse Him. Do not refuse the blood of Christ, which speaks even today. Let's pray together and we'll have a closing hymn. Father, Lord, we are so grateful for those that are in Christ today to know that we're not in Christ because of anything that we any anything that we are or anything that we've done. But Father, I pray that we would take this time seriously and that we would meditate upon what we've heard today. Father, these are not light matters. They're not temporal matters. These are not things that we do and face a few consequences. These are eternal choices. These are eternal things we're being called to consider today. Father, I do not know the heart of a single person here today. We struggle to even know our own heart, even as believers, much less determine what somebody else is thinking or what their motive is. But you do. And Lord, as you see fit through the power of the Spirit, I pray that you would make people willing to believe, open their eyes, unstop their ears, that they would see the truth of which has been spoken today. And that they might be able to say that the blood of Christ is the most precious voice they've ever heard. For those that are in Christ today, we know there is no more tender, no more gracious voice than the voice of Christ that saved us. And Father, may we never lose sight of that. Father, we thank you and we praise you. For it's in Christ's name I ask these things. Amen. Let's stand and we'll conclude our time by singing the hymn 109.